There's a question I get asked quite often. All preachers are asked this question. Folks say to us, how do you come up with those sermons each week? Most of us, I suppose, have kind of a boilerplate answer. I know that I have mine. I talk about a resource I use to choose the weekly text from the Bible, and I talk about what my weekly writing schedule involves. Sometimes I tell people reminders that I tell myself. Every successive sermon is not going to be better than the last one was. You have to be at peace with that. Often the things that are most helpful or most interesting to me are not the same thing for you, and the reverse is true also. These things that I cannot control are where the faith part enters in. I pray that the one doing the real work each Sunday is not me, but God, so that you people will get what you need even when I fail. This week I read something that convinced me I also ought to share what I find most difficult about preaching. For me, and I know for many other preachers, the hardest part is the weekly grind. Like all kinds of other work, preaching can be a grind. Week in and week out, we've got to come up with one of these things. And sometimes... I'm not feeling especially hopeful or inspirational, especially during that uh, period of hours when I've set aside time in my schedule to write. And regardless, Sunday morning is going to come. Now, I do not tell you any of this because it is unique to me or because it is unique to preachers. Actually, I believe that quite the opposite is true. I'm sure that plenty of people feel frustrations very much like these. In the case of preachers, it seems on the surface that if you have this calling to preach, that every week it should come with great inspiration. But the reality is that sometimes the passion is hard to find. And all of you know what that is like. Many of us can look back at days when we were younger, more passionate, more idealistic, And we long for a return of those longings deep in our soul. Plenty of us had early dreams about the noble work we would do, and somehow we settled into something a little more regular. Sometimes the situation works in reverse. We find ourselves frustrated that we've been waiting so long for a real calling in our life to come, and it has not shown up yet. Or maybe we, maybe we know what it is that we want to do so very badly, but we keep telling ourselves that we'll wait for a more convenient time. For these feelings of frustration, exhaustion, inadequacy, impatience, plenty of others like those, the prophet Jeremiah turns out to be a pretty good companion. Obviously, none of us are to be compared directly to Jeremiah, this giant of biblical faith. And yet, it is a good reminder that faith did not come easily to him. In fact, quite the opposite was true. When Jeremiah hears God's call in the verses we heard today, his first response is to say, Truly, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a boy. His doubts and misgivings get worse 
as time goes on. At times it seems that Jeremiah's doubts were well-founded. His life will be threatened more than once, and at times referring to his calling, he says to God, I was like a gentle lamb led to the slaughter. And the Lord urges him on, and at other times he genuinely feels as if he has been fooled or tricked by God. He says, O oh Lord, you have enticed me, and I was enticed, and I have become a laughingstock. The word of the Lord has become for me a reproach and a derision all day long. At times, Jeremiah loses faith that his life has any meaning at all and is doing any good. And he prays, Woe is me, woe is me, my mother, that you ever bore me, a man of strife and contrition to the whole land. Just before reading you all of those discouraging words, I noted that Jeremiah did not see himself as a giant of the faith. And I called that a gift. I imagine it doesn't sound like much of a gift, or at least not one that any of us would want. In order for this gift to make sense, one has to know something about Jeremiah's context. Jeremiah was a prophet to the people of Jerusalem in the days of the Babylonian exile, the time when Jerusalem was destroyed, the darkest days in the history of Israel. The days leading up to the exile were not so dark, or so it seemed. Jerusalem was home to Solomon's amazing palace and temple, and a thriving culture had grown up around that temple. Unfortunately, that thriving culture was a thin veneer, and beneath it, the religion of Israel had become an embarrassment. The temple culture in Jerusalem lived opulently by breaking the backs of the poor and rural laborers who came to Jerusalem to offer their sacrifices. The Jerusalem citizens had forgotten the Mosaic Law, they had forgotten its commandments to care for the most vulnerable people, the alien, the orphan, the widow. The temple culture had become more interested in maintaining itself than in its reasons for being there in the first place. And the love of comfort had blinded the elites to the weak fabric of their community. And that blindness would be their downfall. Jeremiah went up to Jerusalem from the nearby village of Anatoth. He was a nobody from a forgotten little place. He came to remind the people of Jerusalem who they were supposed to be. And the difficulties he faced, the ones I read to you, death threats, laughingstock, lamb to the slaughter, they arose because none of the comfortable people wanted to hear what Jeremiah had to say. None of the comfortable people wanted to hear what God had to say. Jeremiah had been called, have been called a good prophet for 21st century America because of the relative comfort in which so many of us live. 
Certainly we can criticize the opulence of the ultra-rich, but the story doesn't stop there. Great concern rightly exists over the growing gap between rich and poor and the disappearing middle class. Many of us have no concept of what life is like for so many who live with so much less. And to take it one step further, compare the life of America's poor with that found in the world's poorest countries, and we really become out of touch. It is also troubling that in the midst of all of this privilege and comfort, our culture seems to be stuck in a crisis of unhappiness. Suicide rates and overdoses, depression and anxiety continue to skyrocket. Our comfort does not seem to translate to genuine well-being. Perhaps we need a Jeremiah to speak to us. If that is true, thankfully the destruction of Jerusalem is not where his story ends. It is only the beginning. Jeremiah will become a prophet of hope for a restored future for Israel. There will be destruction and exile, yes. We heard today in chapter 1 that Jeremiah is called to pluck up and to overthrow. But we also heard he is called to build and to plant. In his darkest hour, rotting in a jail cell in the midst of the exile, Jeremiah will be one of the first to say a word of hope to Israel. He will take the very last bit of his family inheritance and he will buy land in his struggling little village of Anatoth. He will do so telling people that he believes fields will be planted, houses will be built, God will be worshipped once again in the land of Israel. He will say to the suffering Israelites, Thus says the Lord, Surely I know the plans I have for you, plans for your welfare and not for harm, to give you a future with hope. Importantly, Jeremiah's doubts and misgivings about his own faith do not ever go away. And as I said before, those doubts are most certainly a gift. And now that I've told you something of his context, I'll tell you why I think those things are a gift. Jeremiah never thought that any of it was his own doing. He never looked at the transformation of Israel as a product of his own work or a result of his own gifts. It was always about what God was doing. Every time Jeremiah said something to the people of Israel, his words began, Thus says the Lord. That's not just some archaic introduction. It is a constant reminder that Jeremiah understood himself not as a speaker, but as a listener. Not as someone gifted to lead, but as someone required to follow. He never lost his flaws or his doubts. 
He saw God at work, and he followed as much as he could. And so we remember him as a giant of the faith. There may be a word here for us at Knox Church on this first Sunday in February. This morning we held our annual meeting prior to this service. We circulated copies of our annual report. It is full of good news. Strong numbers, good stories, pictures of smiling faces. We are a blessed community and we have so much to feel very good about. The measure of our faithfulness, though, is found in our response to that good news. Do we pat ourselves on the back, congratulate ourselves for all we have done, glad that we are not struggling like those other people in dying churches? Or do we realize that everything we have here, everything we have, belongs to God? We are simply instruments. Do we see the good gifts that we have as blessings? Blessings that we must share lavishly and with an open hand in service to God and to others? Do we look at our blessings and ask, God, where are you calling us next? Do we ask that question with enthusiasm? And when we ask it, are we prepared to ask it with the same enthusiasm in times when the news is not good? With whatever blessings we have as a people of God, who are we going to be? I began this morning with an honest admission that sometimes I get discouraged about preaching. I openly admit that there are times sitting in my office working on a sermon Thursday afternoon or Saturday night, <laughs> and I wish I were doing something else, someplace else. But I must add to that honesty by also telling you this. There has never been a time in those little bouts of self-pity that at some point I do not pinch myself. Because my job is to read the Bible, live in this community with all of you, and preach about it on Sunday. And as flawed as I am, you pay me a salary to do that. I know there are others of you who may find yourselves discouraged in your own work. Maybe the passion you once had for it is not what it used to be, or you're still waiting for that passion to show up. You are not alone in those feelings. Let me tell you one more thing that separates us from Jeremiah. We are not alone. We have each other along this journey in hopes that we will help and encourage one another, challenge one another to follow God to bold new places, speak prophetic words to one another in times when they are needed. God has placed us together here for a reason. If you are feeling discouraged, 
I pray you will know you may be here at Knox Church for a time such as this. Let us go where God leads. Let us go without fear. Let us go to pluck up and to pull down, to build and to plant, to seek the welfare of the city where God has sent us. Thanks be to God. Amen.